Good morning, church. Good to see everybody. Another beautiful 75-degree day in Alaska, which apparently is just how we roll for now until Jesus comes back. Right? Is that the... That's what I'm telling my Californian wife. Um, we are excited to have you here. It's been a lot of, of in and out this summer. I've been in and out a lot this summer. And so one of the things we wanted to do here is we jump back into the series. We've been talking about the first three kings of Israel is kind of start, you know, I love those shows. Uh, you, you Maybe you haven't seen an episode in a little while and you're a little behind. And so they'll start at the beginning and they go, previously on whatever show it is that you're going to watch. And, and I found, I Google imaged it. And the first one that came up was, was um, oops, where is the... There it is. Previously on My Little Pony. And if there's ever a show with complex plot twists and it's just hard to follow from show to show, it's, it's My Little Pony. So I'm really glad they caught us up to speed uh, with all the weird little ponies. Uh, but we, we want to do this previously on, on King of Kings. Catch us up and we're going to fast forward a little bit to where we are today. Um, two weeks ago we talked about Saul twice being put at David's disposal. Here's, here's a man who's been trying to kill David on the run for years, David could have killed him twice, but instead, instead shows mercy and grace and kindness. And then you fast forward a few chapters, and there's this bizarre scene where Saul calls Samuel up from the dead through this medium to try to figure out what he should do next in battle. And dead Samuel says, man, even death can't get rid of me from you, Saul. What is, what is it going to take to get out of this guy's hair? And he says, Saul, you're about to go into battle tomorrow, and you will die, you and your sons. And that's exactly what happens. A tragic close to the end of 1 Samuel. As, as Saul's men are defeated in battle, his sons and including Jonathan, die, and Saul falls on his own sword when he sees the end closing in. It's a tragic demise to a walk of disobedience away from God. But as the curtain rises in 2 Samuel, we see David, and what we see in him, he mourns not only for his best friend Jonathan, but also for Saul, the man who's been trying to kill him incessantly. He mourns for him, he weeps for him, another symbol of grace. And then in chapter 2, at last, at long last, 25 years after he had been anointed king as a shepherd boy, David sits on the throne and assumes kingship over Israel. But even that doesn't start out all rosy. He reigns for about 40 years, but the first seven and a half years, he only reigns over Judah because there are some men that came from Saul's camp that worked against David, and it takes seven and a half years until he's finally reigning over all of the nation. And that's where we're going to pick up the story today in 2 Samuel chapter 7, one of the most important chapters, listen, in the Bible. God's going to make this, what we say, covenant a promise or a partnership with David. And this is not just relevant for David thousands of years ago, but absolutely necessary for our lives today in Soldatna, Alaska. And so we want to press into this and we want to pray. Father, we ask that you show us yourself in this morning, that we might praise you for the good and glorious God that you are. Father, I pray that your word would speak through me and that you would give us all eyes to see. Give us hearts to receive what we need to hear of your son this morning. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and it starts off with a request from David. He, he comes and says, when the, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Now, this was promised 
to the nation of Israel back in Deuteronomy to Moses. Look at what God said. When you go over the Jordan and live in the land, the promised land that the Lord God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies, he says, this is going to happen. But remember, the contingent point was that they had to obey God and his law. Saul had not obeyed God, and so the people had not experienced rest. David was a king who did obey God, and they experienced victory and rest over their enemies as God had promised. So this is a movie. This is sort of that happily ever after moment. What comes on the other side of the happily ever after? We find out in verse 2. The king said to Nathan, the prophet, and and you've read through this story before. You go, Nathan, that's the guy. We're going to see him in a couple weeks in the story of Bathsheba. He says to Nathan, the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Now, cedar was this highly valued wood at the time, and they would actually import it in from Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon, this awesome wood. Jill and I just bought Uh, We built a house, and we imported cedar from Lebanon. It's the only way to go. Everybody's doing it. Uh, Don't miss out. David has this sweet pad that he's living in, sort of MTV Cribs, lifestyle of the riches and the famous, sort of a a get-up. And this is after, I mean, think of it. For six years, he was hiding out in caves, running through the wilderness. And now he gets to dwell in a place like this. This is an incredible change for David at rest from his enemies, living in a mansion. But I love his love for God and his passion for his God's glory. Because what he says here to Nathan is, this isn't right. I'm living in this beautiful mansion and my God's living in a tent? That isn't right. And Nathan kind of cheerleads him on in this. He says to the king, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. He says, that sounds good. God's with you. Press into that. But God, we're going to see, has very different plans for David. God makes a promise. He says that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, the prophet. He says this, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? Remember, those are the leaders before the kings, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God says, I've never lived in a house. I've never asked to live in a house. Now, what is this language of God living in a house? What's going on here? Well, if you remember, the Ark of the Covenant was given to the people of Israel as a symbol of God's personal presence. Now, of course, God doesn't actually live in this little box, right? He's not genie the lamp. Phenomenal cosmic powers! itty-bitty living space, right? That's, that's, that's not what's going on here. God instructed the people of Israel to, to, to um, make this ark, and they would place it in this thing called the tabernacle or tent of meeting. Now, this tent was a mobile structure. Why? How did the nation of Israel begin? There are people on the go, out of Egypt, through the wilderness, on toward the promised land. So they needed something that was ready to pack up and move on for the next day. And in this tent, the ark represented the place where God and man would meet. But because of man's sinfulness, they couldn't just waltz into his presence, even symbolically. 
And so these priests would go on behalf of the people and they would make these sacrifices for the sins of the nation so they could meet with God. Now, David's desire here is not wrong. It's actually beautiful. He wants to honor his God with the type of dwelling that is glorious and fit for his God. It's not an issue of motive. It's an issue of timing. What we're going to see in this chapter is God is actually going to have David's son, Solomon, be the one who builds him this temple. He's going to later explain, David, you've got blood on your hands, and I'm looking for a king of peace who will build me this this house. But I love what God does here. He turns the tables on David, and look at what he says down in verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now, I love this. He says, David, go tell David, Nathan, you think you're going to build me a house? I'm actually going to build you a house. And then back up in verse 8, he says this. He says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. Now for us, we're hearing that and going, yeah, David's his servant. God is God. We're all serving him. We get it. But the, the people of Israel, if they're reading this, they go, whoa. Because this kind of language, calling him my servant, this has only been used for three people in their nation's history up to this date. It was Abraham, Moses, and Joshua. Three men, three leaders of Israel that God made very specific promises to about this nation. So the Jewish leaders are tracking. They're nudging each other. There's a promise coming. There's a covenant. We've got we to straighten up and listen. And this is so beautiful. He says to David in verse 8, Now thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. He says, I've been with you every step of the way. I'm the one that promoted you from the pastures of obscurity to prince over all of my people. I'm the one who protected you from that crazy Saul guy. I'm the one that went with you as you fled into the wilderness and hid in caves. And I'm the one. It's, it's me, that the same God that chose you and protected you. And it's the same God that's about to bless your socks off. Now again, he says here, I will make for you a great name, like the, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Now again, the Jewish audience would be tracking here. He says, I'm going to make you a great name. Where do we hear that language before? When he's talking to Abraham, what does he say? I'm going to bless you and make your name great. So again, this is covenant language that they would have been tracking with. In fact, this is what we're going to read what is the fifth great covenant that God makes with his created people and the first one, to kind of give us some context here, you go back to the garden. Adam and Eve sin, sin enters into the world, and God makes this covenant. We call it the Edenic covenant because it was made in the Garden of Eden. And what does this covenant say? It, it says that there's this promised seed of a woman who's going to crush the seed of a serpent, which at that time was super obscure. What is God saying? He was saying there was a deliverer who would come and rescue mankind from sin and from death. This is actually the foundational covenant. You read the rest of the story of the Bible, it's just teasing out this truth that God is sending a rescuer to seek and save lost mankind. The next covenant he makes is the man named Noah, the Noahic covenant, Genesis chapter 9. Remember, after the flood comes, he sends a rainbow, a sign of his covenant. I will never destroy the world with a flood again, a sign that there is a deliverer who is coming to prevent global destruction. 
And then he zooms in more specifically with Abraham three chapters later, makes this covenant with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. He says, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you a great nation. And we know that that deliverer is going to come through Abraham's people, the people of Israel. But he says he's not just coming to save the Jewish people. He says it's through your nation that I'm going to bless all nations. That this deliverer would come to save people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And then he walks with this nation of Israel in a special covenant relationship that we call the Mosaic Covenant, because he made it with Moses. And what he says to them is, is I'm going to make you a nation that stands out from the rest of the nations, holy, set apart, a light. And how are you going to live differently than everybody else? You're going to walk according to this covenant that I set with you. We know it as, as the commandments that God gives to the people of Israel, the law of Moses. He says in this covenant, if you obey these covenants, I'll keep you in the land and bless you. But if you disobey the covenants, then I'll curse you and drive you out of the land. And we all know, if you've read the Old Testament, exactly how that one ends up. And now we get here to today's covenant, the Davidic covenant. So what we're going to see here in 2 Samuel is God is going to outline to David how there is a perfect king who's coming, who will rule and reign through the line of David forever. Some beautiful words and an amazing covenant. Matt Chandler from the Village Church uses these three words, dynasty, dominion, and dwelling. And you know it's inspired because they alliterate. And we're going to see these echo in these verses. Look at what he says, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I, that's, not, that's not a great way to start a promise, is it? You're going to die, okay? I will, raise up for, uh, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Who comes from his offspring? Solomon. We know, we read ahead, he's the next king. He says, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He said, it's going to be Solomon that builds me a house, not you, David. But there's much more going on here than just a physical house that will be built and we'll see that in a second. Now, now we're tracking and we're going, okay, so we know, we know there's this thing coming. We know we often want to point all the promises toward Jesus, which that's ultimately where they go, but sometimes we can run ahead. Look at verse 14. He says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. We go, oh, okay. So we see this is going to Jesus. Remember God the Father, Jesus is, is God the Son. We're, we're tracking, but hold on to your theological horses, cowboy. All right, not just Drew. I'm talking to all you guys. It, it, what he's going to see next, this can't be Jesus. When he commits iniquity, it's a big Bible word for sin, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. He says, when your son commits iniquity, now we know Jesus never sins, so this can't just be talking about Jesus. Does Solomon sin? Yeah, he commits iniquity about a thousand times that I can think of. 700 wives and 300 concubines, hello. And he followed those descendants down the line. It's a royal mess. None of these guys can be the perfect king that reigns forever. Who, who will come? But he says there's going to be a difference. You see, Saul sinned and his crown got taken away from him. But look at the promise he makes to Solomon. But my steadfast love, my faithful love, will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. He says, Solomon's going to sin just like Saul, but this is my promise. When he goes all Hugh Hefner on us, I'm not going to take his throne away. It's going to remain. And how, what's the basis of this faithful covenant? This is what's so beautiful. 
the iniquity that Solomon and all that come from him commits. He said, I'm going to discipline him. There's one coming down this line who will be disciplined having never committed iniquity, who will receive the stripes on his back for what these kings had done wrong. Points ahead. And then he finishes up the promise by saying this, and your house and your kingdom, this line, this dynasty, this dominion, we just talked about the dwelling, there's your house word, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now if you're a child of the 90s like I am, you hear this word forever and it takes you back to the sandlot. I'm going to bless you and your throne forever, right? Forever. And this is what he's telling Solomon and, and David in his line. They'll become this king who will reign forever. I'll take that gift away so you can focus. <laughs> now, we know this can't be Solomon, right? Why? He did. Solomon did not rule and reign forever, nor did any of those other kings. He's pointing toward this righteous king that will come and will never die. This is what we call, it's a big fancy word, progressive revelation according to this king that would come. That just means that we see more and more. It's like the light gets brighter as we go forward in scripture. So we, we go back and we see that he had promised this deliverer will come from the seed of a woman. So we know that it's going to be a human that comes from the seed of a woman. It's pretty broad. Then he says to, to Abraham in Genesis 17, kings shall come from you. And he's talking to the nation of Israel. So this king will come from the line of Israel. And then in Genesis 49, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. So here we see it's going to be the seed of a woman. It's going to be from Israel. He will be a king from the line of Judah. And now here in 2 Samuel 7, we see that it's going to be from the line of David. But wait a minute. David's throne ends in 586 BC when Zedekiah, the last king, sinful king, Babylon, takes he and his people into captivity. We never have another king of Judah up to this day. David's throne is discontinued for the moment, but his line perseveres. And hundreds of years down the road, in the city of David, in this little manger, Backside of an inn. There's a baby that's born. And this angel speaks to this woman. Says, don't be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. There's the Edenic covenant. A seed of a woman. He didn't come from Joseph. He just came from Mary. This is the seed of a woman. And you shall call his name. Who's the king? Who's the one that sits on the throne? His name will be called Jesus. And he will be called great. And he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. Here's the Davidic covenant language coming into play. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, Abrahamic covenant. Kings will come from you, Abraham, forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Here's the perfect righteous king who will reign forever. Jesus fulfills the Davidic covenant. Jesus is the one who will never sin and who will reign as king of life forever and ever. Amen? And we see in this covenant Jesus fulfilling dominion, dwelling in dynasty. The dominion that he has meaning his rule and reign. It says, Philippians 2 says, one day every knee will bow and tongue will confess that he's the Messiah, the Christ, the King. 
But to have dominion, you have to defeat your enemies. Now the kings, the first prophecy was fulfilled when they drove out the, the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Parasites. Remember all the ites? They had to get rid of the promised land, right? Or, or the enemies out of the promised land. But Jesus' battle wasn't against flesh and blood. What did he come to do? 1 Corinthians 15. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And who are his enemies? It's not against flesh and blood. He says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. He came to conquer sin and death and bring us life everlasting. He comes with dominion. He also comes for dwelling. Where will the house, where will this dwelling place of God be? Listen, Solomon builds this crazy expensive temple. But even that is a whisper and a shadow of where God was sending this thing. He says, it's not about a tabernacle. Solomon himself says, you can't contain God in a tabernacle. Are you kidding me? He's God. He's eternal. Where does God choose to dwell? It's not in a temple or a house built with brick and mortar, but in the people of God ourselves. We become the touch point of God and man. First Peter, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. This is the beautiful truth that the house that God would build for David wasn't the tabernacle for Solomon. It's us. He comes and dwells in us and with us now and forever. A holy tabernacle. Why? Because I got my stuff together? Uh-uh. Because Jesus washed me. Because Jesus cleansed me. And I can be a place where God and man can meet. Dominion, dwelling, and then dynasty. Dynasty, and this is so cool. Jesus is coming back a second time, and he will fulfill many of these promises literally, reigning in Israel, as he was promised. And you, you read the last chapter of the Bible, Genesis, or Revelation, and you see where this all ends. It says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, in the city of Jerusalem, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and they, not just Jesus, those who follow him will reign with him, it says, forever and ever. See, God's going to recreate heaven and earth, and this city is going to come down this crazy, read Revelation, it's this crazy big cubic city that's going to dwell where Jerusalem currently is, and that's where he's going to set up his throne, and what he invites us into, he's going to go back and restore the Garden of Eden, where we can walk with God once again as he had originally intended, and that he will remove the curse, language says, and we'll not just walk with our God, he says we will reign with our God forever and ever. Amen. This is crazy. And David, he receives this promise washing over him. And you look at his response here. I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation. I love the way it words this. It says, then King David went and sat before the Lord and prayed. He hears these words like a flood and he just collapses in a heap on his throne. Like, I can't even comprehend this. And Jen Wilkins says, there's three questions David asks here we want to pull out from the text. The first one is, who am I? Who am I? There's humble language that David's going to use here. Ten times he refers to himself in that covenant language of God's servant. He recognizes that. He doesn't come with this attitude of, well, of course you're going to use me. I am amazing. Look at what he says. Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family? We were nobodies, stinky shepherds, that you have brought me this far. And now, sovereign Lord, in addition to everything else, all these good things that you've already done to me, for me, in my life up to this point, you speak of giving your servant a lasting dynasty. 
And I love this line. Do you deal with everyone this way, O sovereign Lord? Are you, are you this good with everybody? Like, why do I deserve to be placed in such a position of privilege? I mean, should that not be our heart? David says, I don't deserve this. You took me some random shepherd boy. You made me king of Israel. You win all these awesome battles through me. I'm slaying guys that are nine feet nine. And now you say that my family is going to sit on the throne forever? That from my loins will come the king of kings and the lord of lords? Who am I? Do you treat everyone this way? And as believers in Christ, should this not be our heart disposition toward our God? Wait a second. You took me, some random kid born in a trailer park in Indiana, who constantly rebels against you, who hurts your people that you love, and you made me your own son. You gave me victory over all of my enemies, over sin and death, and now you say that I'm going to get to rule and reign with you, the God of the universe, forever? Do you treat everyone this way? He says, I do. For all who will believe. Why does God do this for us? David says in verse 20, what more can I say to you? You know what your servants really like, sovereign Lord, (laughs) because you know me. I'm just a shepherd. I'm a sinner. I don't deserve this. I couldn't earn it. I couldn't pay for it. Who am I to receive this kind of promise from you? And he knows there's only one foundation that this could be built on, and he says it in verse 21. Because of your promise and according to your will. You have done all these great things, and not just done these things, have made them known to your servant. God didn't just do great things for us. He communicates them through his word. David says, I am not worthy of this. And the only reason that I received this promise is because of your will, because you desired this. This is the kind of God you are. Because you are a good God. Because you are a generous God. Because you are a loving, faithful God. You, from your own will, not from my merit, made this promise. Which is so good because if this promise was up to David to uphold, if it was up to you or I, we'd be up the proverbial creek without a proverbial paddle. Remember back in verse 15? But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. Solomon did not deserve to have the crown after all of his sin. Neither did any of the other kings, and neither do you or I. But he says that is not the grounds that God makes these unconditional promises to us. Who am I to receive this? Then he says, who are you? Who am I and who are you? He gives honor to his God. He says, how great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. We have never even heard of another God like you. Not just that they're not as good as you, there's no other God that exists. He's coming back to the foundation of the Mosaic law, the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because those gods aren't as good? No, because I'm the only true God. He's inviting himself in prayer back into reality. And isn't that a reality check that you and I need on a daily basis? We make so many other things our idols because we fail to trust the heart of God and the number one culprit that I make of God is myself. And I want to control my universe instead of bowing the knee to the true king of kings. Who am I? Who are you? And he says, who is Israel? He looks back at his people's history to recall God's 
faithful blessing and covenant with them. He says, what other nation on earth is like your people, Israel? What other nation, O God, have you redeemed from slavery to be your own people? You made a great name for yourself when you redeemed your people from Egypt. You performed awesome miracles and drove out the nations and gods, the false gods that stood in their way. You made Israel your very own people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. And you know what? These amazing blessings that God had in store for Israel are not just for Israel. What did we read? Through you, all nations will be blessed. Now, we are not modern-day Israel. There is a distinction, but we, as the church, receive the blessings through Abraham that were intended for every tongue, tribe, and nation. In Romans 4, he says that Abraham is the father of all who believe, not just the Jews, but to those that Megan just went to reach in Swaziland. To the Native Americans who just gathered with Jason and we saw many come to bow the knee to this king. The blessing is available for all in Christ to be his people forever. And he closes by standing on the promises. There's hope. Now this is interesting. The rest of David's prayer basically says to God, you know that thing that you just promised to me that you would do? Do it. (laughs) I'll read this. And now, O Lord, I am your servant. Do as you have promised concerning me and my family. Confirm it as a promise that would last forever. Didn't God just say that? Okay. And may your name be honored forever so that everyone will say the Lord of heaven's armies is God over Israel. And may the house of your servant David continue before you forever. O Lord of heaven's armies, God of Israel, I have been bold enough to pray this prayer to you, to walk into his presence, because you have revealed all this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For you are God, O sovereign Lord. Your words are truth, and you have promised these good things to your servant. And now, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you have spoken, and when you grant a blessing to your servant, O sovereign Lord, it is an eternal blessing. Now, wait a second. Didn't God just make this promise? So why is David telling God to do a thing that he just promised for him to to do? It's confusing, isn't it? Well, one of, the, one of the many beautiful byproducts that come from a wedding are not just getting a new spouse to walk with, but you get copious amounts of gift cards. <laughs> we don't have to spend another dollar of our own from Amazon for like the next two or three decades. It's amazing, right? You guys have been kind and generous, bed, bath, and beyond all measure. Now, we're given these gift cards, right? So they, they belong to us. They, they were promised. You have this. There's, there's this amount on, on there, and the more that you loved us, the higher the dollar amount was, which is really, really cool. But here's the deal. If we don't appropriate those, if I don't take the steps of putting that on my Amazon account and then using it, I've been given that gift, but I have not appropriated the benefits of it. I have not claimed this promise and believed, walked by faith in it. So when I come to Amazon and I say, do the thing that this card says that you must do, in the name of this gift card, I claim my cutlery set. You owe me that Nespresso. What, Chuck, like that one? 
David's prayer is claiming God's promise. What's he doing? He's using the gift card, and that delights the heart of his God that gave it to him. Charles Spurgeon, he says, God sent the promise on purpose. Why? To be used. He loves to see his children bring them up to him and say, Lord, do as thou hast said. And let me tell you, he says, it glorifies God to use his promises. That's why David says, because of your promises, because of your word, I'm asking you in your name to do what you said you were going to do. This isn't begging for God to do something, to try to manipulate his will. It's walking into the middle of his will and claiming what is ours. See, God promises us salvation, but it only benefits those who will claim that gift card by faith. What promises are you failing to claim that God has given you freely today in Christ? He's offered you forgiveness, but maybe you're unwilling to walk in that forgiveness, to forgive someone else, or to let go of some of those things, the guilt and the shame that you feel in your own life. Maybe he promised us peace that passes all understanding, but we're not walking by faith and claiming that peace today. Maybe it's, it's growth, that he's promised us victory over sin, that he will make us more like Christ. Are we walking in that? The wisdom that he promises us, the guidance that he promises us. Lean not on your understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Are we walking in that? What we find is this audacious invitation in Hebrews chapter 4. It says, Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Today is a day of need. Without him, we have no shot. I want you to come to me and claim the things that I've given to you freely in Christ, mercy and grace. And that's exactly what David is doing here. By faith, he is boldly claiming the covenant that God just made with him. Jesus makes this, God makes this crazy promise to David. He says, from your kingly line will come a perfect ruler who will reign forever. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is the king. And John Piper, he kind of sums it up. He says, in light of this, in light of this call, in light of Jesus being our eternal king, we've got a mission today that we've got we to focus on, on. The first one is our personal holiness. We'll do these two things and we'll be done. Personal holiness. You see, we were called to submit ourselves to the son of David. He's ruling right now, and one day he's going to come back. He's going to trample that death like he promised in 1 Corinthians 15. And in the meantime, here's the question. What area of your life needs to come under obedience and submission to that king? Maybe you're in this room and you've never bowed the knee to King Jesus. He is king whether or not we recognize it. And Philippians says one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, but it's much better to do it today. And maybe some of you are believers in Jesus. You are followers. But what area of your life, maybe there's a place where you're rebelling against that king where you're not walking in what his heart is for you, what he's called you to do. We trust his heart, and so we obey his word. What change needs to be made as a child of the king? And then personal evangelism. Now we're called to go announce that good news, that, that everybody today can be a happy subject of Christ's kingdom if they'll pledge allegiance to that king. So the question for us is, who has God put in your path that needs to hear this wonderful promise? There are those around us that don't know the wonderful joy of a king who loves them, who is for them, who has rescued them and has called them into a beautiful relationship, the touch point with his people where God meets man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've made this beautiful promise to, to David 
and that it rings true in our ears to this day, that in a world of rebels and disobedient sinners, you sent this baby to receive the discipline and stripes that we belong, that belong to us so that there might be a way made back into relationship with you, so that we could become the touch point of God, that you would dwell with us, that your dominion over this universe, over sin and death would be sure, and this dynasty that you have given us the privilege to walk in is ours, to sit at the right hand of the Father with Jesus forever. And God, do you deal with everyone this way? We thank you for this free gift given to us in Jesus made through the line of David. Father, may we claim the gift card that is freely available to us. If there's anybody in this room that has not claimed Jesus as king, bow the knee to him as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day. If there are brothers and sisters in here who know there are areas that are, they are not submitting to the king, they are not trusting into your heart, Father, that today would be the day that they would make that change, go have that conversation, go take that step by faith. And Lord, that we would be a people whose hearts burn as we know the joy to walk and live and dance in the presence of our King, to go tell the world that there's a better way to quit living as their own gods and say there is no other God. There is one true King, and His name is Jesus. It's in His authoritative, gracious, beautiful name that we boldly enter into your throne room to pray. Amen.